My name is Robert Winfrey. Hello, everyone. And what you're about to listen to is a re-airing of an old episode of a podcast I used to host called Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. This particular episode originally aired November 1st, 2013, and is a discussion of arguably the greatest slasher villain in cinema history, Mr. Freddy Krueger. This episode features myself and Sean Comer, and sadly is all still very, very relevant. Uh, We haven't missed much of anything, as Mr. Kruger has not made any kind of reappearance since the Nightmare on Elm Street remake-slash-reboot starring Jackie Earl Haley that we discuss in this particular episode. But this was a lot of fun to have on, uh, as an episode goes. There's a bit of an awkward cut here around the 13-minute mark, um, blog talk radio at the time was somewhat notorious for connectivity issues, and there just wasn't a way to kind of smooth that out a whole lot. So I apologize for a bit of the for this a bit, the bit of the jump cut there. You are not hearing things. That's as good as that transition was going to get. Uh, before we get to the episode featuring past me and past Sean, let's pay a few bills here. First up, uh, Grammarly has been a longtime supporter of the W2M Network. For you listeners of the W2M Network here, specifically Everyone Loves a Bad Guy re-airs, Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. We could all use that these days. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes, while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M Network. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash W2M Network to download Grammarly for free. If you don't feel like typing that in anywhere, there is a link in the description of this particular podcast, so please do check that out. Grammarly is a very, very useful tool. Our other sponsor for the evening, as it currently stands, is Amazon Music. Amazon Music is one of the best, if not the best, I tend to think it's the best, music streaming services available. It has a library of over 70 million songs, and right now, you listeners are invited to try Amazon Music ad-free, sorry, yeah, ad-free, the whole shebang for 30 days on us. It's getamazonmusic.com slash W2M Network. There is a link in the description below as well if you'd rather click that. Fill out the little survey that they give you, lets them know that we're the ones that sent you there. Helps us, helps Amazon by keeping them as informed as they can possibly be. And you can get a free 30 days of the best music streaming service there is on the internet right now. There is no downside to free, no muss, no fuss apart from that that, uh, that little opening survey to fill out. It's not even really a survey, it's just where did you hear about this? Tell them we sent you, and there is no downside. 30 days free after that. If you like it, you can keep it. If not, well, you get free 30 days of music. What's there to complain about? So, once again, thank you to Amazon Music as well as Grammarly for sponsoring us. Well, let me throw it to the musical Voltaire and to myself in the past to talk about the iconic Freddy Krueger. <laughs>
The devil is too busy and that's a bit too much. They call on me by name, you see, for my special touch. To the gentleman, I'm misfortune. To the lady, I'm surprised. But call me by any name, any way it's all the same. I'm the fly in your suit. I'm the pebble in your shoe. I'm the key beneath your bed. I'm the bump on every head. I'm the pill on which you slip. I'm the pit in every head. I'm the thorn in your side. Makes you wriggle and writhe. Tipses have to be I do it all because I'm evil And I do it all for free Your kids are all the pay I'll ever need Hello and welcome once again to Everyone Loves a Bad Guy Kicking off the month of November by wrapping up Horror Month here on the show and we're looking at the biggest horror villain of them all. The biggest icon to come out of the entire decade that was the 80s, and thankfully the only thing that seems to have persisted, cocaine notwithstanding. We're talking about Freddy Krueger, the man who single-handedly kept the studio of New Line Cinemas afloat when they were near bankruptcy. So for all fans of Lord of the Rings and all of the other great movies that have come out of New Line, you can thank Freddy Krueger, because that whole... That entire studio would not be here if not for Robert England and the Scorched Man with the glove. So thank Freddy Krueger and thank Wes Craven. But I'm also not here alone. Uh, he's been here every week except the first week of Horror Month here on Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. He's coming to us live from seclusion in the Fortress of Seanitude. It is Sean Comer, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome him back. And, Sean, how are you doing? I'm fantastic and surrounded by some beautiful, beautiful geekdom. <laughs> That's a good one. Well, well, seriously, because, I mean, right in front of me on my um, I've got my PlayStation 3 uploading the latest update from Injustice, which I'm playing while I'm taking a break from Batman Arkham Origins. my right, I've got stacks of Green Lantern and Batman graphic novels. On top of that, awaiting me, I've got the Metal Gear Solid Legacy Collection, which was gifted to me very recently. And behind me, I've got a curious little esoteric mishmash of books in which I see Ernest Hemingway, the Scott Pilgrim box set, um, Pablo Neruda. There's some, yeah, there's the Sin City Collector's Edition down there. Um, oh, and Stephen Colbert's book is all right on top of that. Yeah, you're pretty well surrounded by the geekdom there. <laughs> well, it, it's... This way, when I get to take a break every few hours from what I do for a living, I can just kind of set my timer on my phone for about 30 minutes of Sean time and just pick something and just pick up the DualShock, play some some games, uh, grab whatever book I happen to be reading at the moment. At this time, I have about two Ernest Hemingway short stories left to read. Uh, There's about 25. It's nice. It's, it's a nice little life that I that I lead in the Sean Cave. Oh, and I have yeah. sunflowers. It, it, oh, no sunflower seeds. That's sad. But it, it sounds good. you got a nice little setup there. Now, I've kind of hyped this particular edition of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy with, in, in addition to other things, the phrase that you and I are finally going to have something of a disagreement. Because we have slightly different opinions on the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise and Freddy Krueger and all of that. Because you are... Rather staunchly of the opinion that you like the original, you like the original, 
and Wes Craven's New Nightmare, and don't care much for the intervening seven or so films. The intervening seven or so, well, they mostly have four, five, seven. Okay, there's eight other films, but okay. I'm not sure how much we're gonna. I'm not sure how much we count Freddy versus Jason as far as that goes, because that's just kind of its own entity. Yeah, that uh, that really does stand alone, because even though even though New Line made it, uh, that's just. Ronnie Yu kind of doing his own thing, and really, uh, that, that's almost kind of like the Duke Nukem Forever of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, in that, you know, you had so many cooks in the kitchen at various times working on that, and so many stories that were played with and talked out, and somebody else picked it up, and somebody else kind of took this concept, and somebody else started and ran with it, and it gradually became this, or it could have become that, so on and so forth that what came out wasn't really bad, but it wasn't as good as I think what could have been had they just had one concerted effort from somebody the entire time. Or if they'd killed off the annoying chick in the first ten minutes instead of waiting until the last, but hey, you can't have ever. But yeah, we're talking specifically about Freddy Krueger, and I mentioned before he might be the biggest he was one of the biggest cultural icons of the entire decade that was the 1980s there were like two recognizable faces from the 80s you had ronald reagan you had freddy krueger I mean, he was that big he was everywhere and I, I you were unable to make the first uh episode of horror month here uh scheduling conflicts i didn't give you the exact date and time properly so but i talked about all of the other slashers that were not freddy krueger so, you know, Leatherface, Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, all those fun guys. Freddy Krueger is in so many ways the opposite of all of them. With Michael and Jason and Leatherface, you tend to have these... They're, they're more physically imposing, they're silent, and they just kind of walk you down and kill you when you're cardio fake. And it, with Freddy, you have something that is very different. He's much more slight of stature... He exists within the dream world, so he actually has supernatural powers as opposed to just the vague references we have to, you know, either the shape or Jason's inability to remain dead for more than about six months at a stretch. And more so than that, he had you know, he had a personality, and to its detriment, it would be played up in later films, but that was one of the big things that differentiated him from all of the other kind of contemporary slashers was, here's someone who's not just you know, kind of the faceless void behind the mask, the force of nature. This is actually Freddy Krueger. There's actually a personality and a person behind this. And that ability to be different was, I mean, especially in the early 80s when, Freddy, when the original Nightmare on Elm Street came out, it was so different from everything else that it just immediately caught on. So I just, I'm curious as to like your first expo exposure to Freddy Krueger specifically. Sir, have you really the audacity to try to tell me that Manimal out and what the hell? Let's go ahead and throw, go ahead and throw him out there. Uh, Webster are not as big an icons of the '80s as Ronald Reagan and Freddy Krueger. Nope. You want to know why? Because people still talk about Reagan and Krueger. You, you honestly think that somewhere there are people who are not reminiscing on the glory of Manimal? I'm not, and to the best of my knowledge, never will. Okay, check it. Just my perspective on things. But, yeah, um, so... My, yeah, you're, um, you're, my experience was here and there actually catching bits and pieces, isolated, just really isolated kills of Nightmare on Elm Street, on edited for cable version, it was actually quite some time 
Um, I think I was actually in high school when I saw when I finally saw the original for the first time, and I absolutely I absolutely loved it. Um, at the time when I saw the the isolated kills of the sequels, I was I was in junior high or late elementary school, and I was much easier to please than I am right now. I wasn't the guy who sat here just not all that long ago and screamed for 30 minutes about how much he hated the very soul, the bile-filled guts of Hellraiser Revelation. I saw stuff like somebody being puppeteered by the veins and walked off the roof of the house. Uh, the the comic book kill from, uh, is it The Dream Child, I think that was from? I can't remember specifically. I didn't get a chance to... Uh, We here at Everyone Loves a Bad Guy do our best to prepare for these things, folks, and just due to the whole week that kind of came before it, I did not get the chance to review and re-document and refresh my memory on all of his different kills that Freddy Krueger has because he has some inventive ones. So, yeah, as far as comic books, it's either, I want to say that's either Dream Child or Dream Master, but I couldn't be sure either way. Yeah, we're... The point being, we're really painting with broad strokes here. We're just kind of, we're not going to probably go over that many of the actual kills and which movies they're they're from, because, uh, quite frankly, Robert, you write lots, you host and guest on several podcasts. I'm on several. We both have day jobs. Um, and in addition, I'm also prepping a weekly music column. So, unfortunately, we only have so much time to watch them. But that was kind of what I saw at first. And then what happened was when I saw the first one and I saw how really impressive the practical effects were for that time, especially for how much ingenuity they had, how much they had to improvise, and how Freddy really wasn't a jokester. He really wasn't punny. He wasn't trying to make you laugh. He wasn't trying to leave you with a joke. He was just doing his thing and murdering brutally, sadistically and psychologically torturing his victims along the way. And then kind of sometime after that, I got a chance to really sit down and several times watch Wes Craven's New Night, which stands as my second favorite entry in the entire series because compared to everything else I had seen, I had first been exposed briefly in bits and pieces to Freddy as the joke, as kind of the big womp womp, of all of them. And then I got to see Freddy as the menacing, sadistic child killer. Then finally I got to see this movie, and I got to see Freddy amped up to pants-shittingly terrifying. I mean, just really being at his very most purely evil. So that's kind of my rundown. And, you know, I, I'm going to save my thoughts on the remake for the end of the show because I know we're going to have to, and I, I kind of want to save my strength for it really give it what it is. Yeah, we we will discuss the remake and the sad laundry list of ways that it went wrong, but there were plenty of good points that I enjoyed about it as well. But you know that's you know kind of for the end. But uh just kinda of, as far as Freddy goes, you're right. He his init- initially he was not a jokester. He did not have the you know, probably the most famous okay, I, there's two of them here and one of them I don't dislike, but the two most famous kind of Freddy quips immediately before inflicting horrible doom on someone. Uh, one of them would be from Dream Warriors, which is the third one, uh, your prime time now, bitch, before he smashes her head through a... Welcome to prime time, bitch, yeah. 
that the one that I the one that I quite emphatic. Bob, are you still there, buddy? Watch. Oh, and I'll mention it again. Uh, Freddy Krueger and the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise is what saved New Line Cinema from bankruptcy. The entire studio was not in a good financial place until Wes Craven came along with the character and the idea behind the original Nightmare on Elm Street and spawned a monumental success. And even then, um, this was a very troubled production. Yeah, I mean, what they wound a, when you there were stories that came out of, after the production of this movie about about the budget and some of the things they had to do. The whole premise of Freddy Krueger is he is someone who kills you in your sleep. And because he lives and deals in the dream world, that provides a lot of opportunity for awesome stuff, both visually and physically. Oh, God, and, yeah. we, and so you have to, you know, if you're going to have that, if you're going to say, okay, no, you're not even safe when you sleep, he's going to kill you in the dream world, you have to be able to play with that a little bit, otherwise you're just making false promises. And the amount that everyone involved with this was able to cap was able to do on you know, with even with the hugely troubled production is just a, a huge testament to everyone involved. Yeah, well, let's do a little quick number crunching here because I, I want to make a comparison to absolutely shame the rip and the few <laughs> please. Yeah, um, the original nightmare, the original Nightmare on Elm was made back when New Line Cinema was still, I believe it was a New York store. It was a Probably. production that, yeah, that was troubled by people either not being paid on time or some people not being paid at all. It was funded largely out of the pockets of Robert Shea, the producer, and Wes Craven. It was made on a budget this of was, one... If you were working on this movie, it was like working for Paul Hank, for all the pro wrestling oh, fans oh, out oh, there. Excellent comparison. Oh, yes. Um, and it was made on a budget of $1.8 million, much of it involving you know, a few very faithful investors, but a lot of it also being Wes and Robert maxing out their fucking credit cards just to pay people. Things were improvised. A lot of effects were, in, were improvised. That famous scene of Freddy pushing through the wall, that was done with a wall made of spandex, spandex, folks, the stuff that the Baywatch swimsuits were later crafted from was used to create one of the most mind-bending, eerie horror visuals of the era. Total budget for this film, $1.8 million. Total box office gross, $26.3 million. At the time, that was unheard of. Yeah. Now, bear in mind that's 1984 dollars. People was when the movie was released. So, if you, uh, you know, I don't know the, I, I can't adjust for inflation in my head, but that's that's a pretty substantial amount. Yeah. Now let's go take a look. Take a look at the remake, shall we? Came out uh, in 2010. Not. Yeah, came out in 2010 to much fanfare. Thirty-five thousand dollars. Million. Um. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Yes, thirty-five million. I'm sorry. $35 million budget, much of it going into really obvious CGI that took you right out of the movie every time you saw it, including the redo of the wall scene, and it ultimately ended up making $177 million, but is not even remotely as liked by absolutely anybody as the original was. Well, plus, you want if, to you want to do, if you want to do a tad bit of number crunching here, the... And I'm not going to go into you know, again too much detail because math is not my strong suit, people. But 
as far as just a percentage return, the original had a much greater return on the investment in terms of you know dollar spent to dollar earned than the re- it is a, the original is a much more profitable film despite earning overall less money than the than the re- by a fair margin uh, far more uh, absolutely more and again absolute shoestring budget but it works because of the inventive mind that was behind it the fact that that mind really went about crafting an unsettling horror story in the most unsettling way possible in that he crafted it, as we'll probably get to here in a minute, from a pastiche of a lot of true life elements. And also, you really just had some pure talent on this, some people who were inventive, some people who could improvise, a a sense of ingenuity, a sense of and a real belief in something that was organic. Because that's one of the tricky things about horror, is the fact that there are a lot of stories like Hellraiser, wherein you can kind of take yourself out of it and enjoy it, because you realize it's mostly involving a lot of things that cannot be of this earth. Almost entirely, it's physically impossible in this world as we know it. Nightmare on Elm Street, on the other hand... It was made by a very intelligent man, a former teacher of English, former teacher of literature, who was inspired by the story of real Cambodian who were dying in their sleep after apparently being plagued by incredibly graphic nightmares, ones that felt incredibly real to them. Hell, it's even from that that Wes Craven took the plot element of Nancy keeping a hidden coffee maker in her closet to keep herself awake because she was terrified that if she fell asleep, she'd fucking die. Now, then from there, you've got Freddy Krueger. Wes claims that he just thought of, well, what's the most horrible, horrible kind of individual that I could possibly imagine? And he thought, okay, somebody who would harm children. And in fact, he even kind of pulled himself back a little bit because in original drafts, Freddy was a child molester. Yeah, the original draft of the script had him as a pedophile. He molested children. They wound up changing that. It's only implied in the story. Because around right. the time it went into production, there was a very highly publicized uh, series of cases involving child molestation in the California area, and he didn't want to be seen as sensationalizing or capitalizing on a, a very tragic thing that, that happens in real life. Yes, yes. And by the way, actually, I, I may have that wrong. I think New Line was actually a Los Angeles storefront, not a problem. So I, I apologize for getting that wrong. Um, but, no. So, okay, so that part of the Genesis for your killer. For the name, Wes, to I guess really inspire him that much more to create somebody that would terrify even him, Name the character after a kid who had bullied him. The idea for the sweater came from Wes reading a Time magazine article. I, I think it was Time. It was some magazine article or another, in which those particular shades were defined as the two that, when combined, were the most dissonant, the, the most unpleasing to the eye, to the mind. And To maximize that effect, they became lateral stripes in addition to just being unple- you know, cognitively right. jarring color. Cognitively jarring, yes. Take it. That, those are the words I was looking for, cognitively jarring. Um, and then I believe, if I recall correctly, I think even the fedora was taken, was an element from a memory 
of uh, a, partic- a particular going off standard. of Wikipedia, which I you know take that take that source with a grain of salt, mind you, but. Going off of that, it was it, he took that kind of from a homeless guy who used to scare him when he was a kid. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I was getting. That's what I was getting at. Yes, yeah, a homeless a homeless old guy because I remember that because I have uh, the special edition DVD of the original Nightmare, and I and I'm absolutely fascinated by the making of that. So when you combine all of this, you are combining elements that are taken from some from things that. West was very invested in personally because they actually legitimately terrified or, or unsettled him. And you're combining it with something that was a very real phenomenon. So you have those kind of organic elements coming together, and when you realize all that, when you take all that into consideration, and even the thought that really, yeah, in your dreams, that is, in your sleep, that is when you're most vulnerable because you're completely dead to the world around you, that is some, that is some terrifying shit. So, of course, that's going to, that's going to be scary. Um, and we'll, we'll get into everything that I love about Wes Craven's new nightmare pretty shortly, but then you combine then I want you to think of that and then think about in so many of the sequels how it goes from Freddy being incredibly sadistic to now almost being the character that you root for because you love his wisecracks and his jokey-jokey so much. And because you have a bunch of unlikable teenagers who you think, you know, yes, please, kill them. Well, yeah, you, you, you have no investment in anybody else. In the first movie, we at least kind of like Nancy. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we at least get some invest in her, at least in part, because she's kind of the only one who sees and really believes in what's going on around her and and kind of gets. So in the rest, you, you still have some elements that are kind of scary because Freddy is still looking into his victims' minds seeing so the thing. He still kills people. I mean, that never changes. Well, well yeah. The way he's... The style in which he's written goes from being in... This is one of my main complaints with various other slashers. If you take someone that's supposed to be a bad guy, someone that's supposed to be scary and intimidating, and you turn them into more of an anti-hero because, hey, we think that'll sell better, you do the character and the series a monumental disservice, and that's what we got with further iterations of Freddy Krueger. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, and, and you know what? Allow me to say something that's kind of a bold statement. Oh, um, please. I actually, the Internet. I, we're here. I actually think that Nightmare on Elm 2, while executed terribly badly, is actually really, it's not a bad concept. No, it's not. It, it's, no. A couple of, it's not a horrible concept, and, again, if executed properly, it could have been a lot better. I mean, the fact that, by and large, the entire thing is a analogy of, someone of a closeted homosexual being afraid of their own desires. Yeah, yeah. Which, um, you know, not the dumbest... Again, since because of the medium in which Freddy lived, that being the dreams and the subconscious and everything, having him be kind of just the physical or personal manifestation of psychological issues or fears, again, like repressing your own sexuality or you know, any number of other things that you just kind of stick down in your mind and that can come out during dreams, having him represent that or use those are not is not a bad thing. It's a very kind of organic thing for the character to do and for him to represent. It's just at that point you're wondering about you know, you get you're questioning the execution as opposed to the method as opposed to the idea behind it. Because 
in the second Nightmare on Elm Street, we get Freddy killing what I imagine to be a homosexual gym teacher in the showers by whipping him to death with a wet towel. And it's hey, uh, just about as stupid as it sounds. You you mind if I be the, uh, the trivia nerd for a second? Nah, go for it. We have another reason to like this, and I actually didn't know this until I looked this up just now. You know who scored a nightmare on Elm Street 2? Would that be Christopher Young? Christopher Hellraiser fucking Young. Oh, I know, now I have to rewatch that one just so I can hear the score. I know, right? The reason I was looking this up is because um, when I was talking about this series with, oh, God, one of one of our fans, I think I was talking about it with either um, Benjamin Cologne, um, our new Long Road to Ruin title artist to be, or uh, my good friend, Timothy Sheridan, who has his own web show, uh, The Plot Hole Club. Um, and somebody was pointing out to me that one of the sequels was actually... Originally, the original script was written by West, but then it was actually later on reworked by two people, one of whom was Frank Darabont. Who, that might have been you know, the third. Yeah, I think, it, I think it was the third. Which I is my personal was. favorite. And you know what? And that speaks volumes for why of the sequels, even though I don't like most of them, the third yeah, one the may screen, are... Yeah. The screenplay for the third one was written in various parts by Wes Craven, Bruce Wanger, Frank Darabont, and Chuck Russell. Well, yeah, there you go, because you had Wes Craven and the man who would eventually give us the first uh, first about, oh, 12 episodes of The Walking Dead. Well, Actually, hey, Frank Darabont, I don't fall into the he-can-do-no-wrong camp, but he has a very strong track record. My biggest issue with him came out of his version of The Mist, just because I was very emotionally attached to that short story of Stephen King's, and he changed the ending. Um, I I seem to believe that he was also the one who adapted... I think he was also the one who adapted the Shawshank Redemption to the screen. Yeah, he did did Shawshank Redemption uh, in the Green Mile. You you want to talk about somebody being hit or miss? Actually, I should really take back my previous comments about combining Wes Craven with The Walking Dead, because I just remembered. I fucking hated the first 12 episodes of The Walking Dead. (laughs) Well, another thing you and I disagree about, but... Uh, well, well, seriously, until that show got to the episode of The Barn, I was wondering why I kept giving this show a chance to keep abusing me. Then it got to that, and then my good friend Jeremy Hulsop explained to me, well, yeah, that was the episode where they switched showrunners. I know it. I was like Banky chasing Amy when he realizes he's in a lesbian bar. Oh. But uh, (laughs) kind of corralling this back on track here, one of the things about specifically three, Dream Warriors, which is, again, my personal favorite. I don't think it's the best. And it does feature the, again, the rather famous, your prime time now. Sadly, that's one of those where I actually think the line before it, if they had cut on that and had him just, smash your face to the television after that one, it would have been better, as opposed to carrying it one line further. But that, to me, that's kind of the movie where Freddy is like the almost the perfect balance of scary, intimidating, and still able to showcase, you know, a personality and a sense of humor. You know what? I feel the need to explain something. I, as, as Jackie, a loyal listener to our podcast, just kind of pointed out to me a bit ago, uh, the part where it cut off was right when I was talking about why I hated that fucking line. It's not because it's necessarily a bad line. Don't there get worse. Wrong. He has many worse lines than your prime time now, bitch. Oh, no. They got worse. But that's the thing. It's like going back and watching 
uh, early 2000s episodes of Raw, right around 2003 or 2004, and all of a sudden you hear John Cena make his first oop joke, and you realize you can pinpoint where it would be all downhill from there. That was where the jokey jokey started. That line in particular is not that bad. The only problem was, in my opinion, that's what set the fucking trend that followed it, at which case you almost wanted to follow every Freddy kill with some kind of generic like... Quick, play me it, off. It, it, yeah, it's when he all of a sudden becomes Freddy Derper. Yeah, it's and I mean, personally, like I said, I find How's This for a Wet Dream to be an exponentially worse line, and it had a worse kill to follow it. Wait, the kid suddenly was sucked into his waterbed and drowned. Oh, fuck me, that fucking line. Yeah, that that's the and one of course, where... That, bear in mind, that's also the line they had to rehash in the remake. One of a number of lines they had to, out of context, rehash in the remake. And my God, I want to think that Jackie Earl Haley died a little bit inside as he read that. Well, especially when you consider earlier... Okay, jump. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here. When I... Is I went in and I saw the remake in theater. I was disappointed in a lot of it because if you, for anybody out there who hasn't seen them, watch them back to back just for fun, because the remake has so many direct shot for shot remakes that they do yeah. work. I mean, the, one of the opening ones where I forget the character or the actress, but in the original Nightmare on Elm Street, you open up following a following a girl, and she is killed within the first ten minutes. She is killed by being violently flung around a room while she's asleep, all over the ceiling and the and defying gravity in all sorts of ways, but she is thrown bodily around the bedroom of her boyfriend before being eviscerated by Freddy's glove. And they do the exact same scene in the remake, and it somehow manages to have none of the same visceral impact. Probably because you're, we you're know part, it's all CGI. You're part right. In the first movie, it doesn't happen. I don't think it's in the first ten minutes. Uh, first but half it, hour. It, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's about the end of the first act of the movie. But yeah, it, uh, there is nothing, not a single thing about the remake that I can say is either equal to or superior to the original. And I know that seems like a no-shit statement, but every so often a remake will come along and will recreate an iconic moment and somehow manage to do it better. I would point to the tree rape scene from... The original Evil, and the new Evil Dead. The original Evil Dead versus the new one. Because oh, yeah, the, the, new, new one, the original is almost laughable, in a lot well, of ways, is, the new one is downright, like, nauseating and flesh crawling. Well, and not only that, in the original, it serves no purpose. It's just there because tree rape. That's why. Script says tree in rape. The new one, yeah. In the new one, it actually serves a purpose. It's the genesis of the possession of the spirit of the Necronomicon. That's how it happens. And it's also done in a much more, in a much more frightening kind of wiki kind of way. I mean, the, uh, but I, to kind of bring back around what I was talking about with Freddy, because, again, Jackie Earl Haley did a phenomenal job as Freddy okay. in the remake. Probably about the most perfect casting you could get if you weren't going to bring Robert England back. Oh, yeah. And earlier in the movie, I said because here, uh, the context for that particular line in the sequel is uh, the heroine, it's 
still ha- it's a you know, still Nancy, but played by Rooney Mara in an exponentially less endearing way than Heather Langenkamp was able to do. But she's running from Freddy through her dreams. She wa- winds up walking through this you know, big pit of mud flop, and she's struggling through it to get away from him. And that's when he goes with, oh, now how's this for a wet? Which, again, makes even less sense there than it did in 4. But this is the same character who, earlier in the movie, having killed a kid in a prison, now, one of the kids is arrested. They think he killed the girl in the beginning. He didn't, mind you, but... So they arrest him, they break, and he's in jail, and that's when Freddy kills him. And back in the dream world, Freddy has this kid upside down, eviscerated, and he, and he kind of like clicks the, the claws of his glove along the wall, and he says, you know the brain can survive for up to five minutes without oxygen? That gives us four and a half left to play. And just in the you know most, the most I, menacing I, way possible. You know what? That is one of the few moments, and I mean, I mean very few. They are leading in that movie in which it act in which it actually felt like I was watching a good nightmare on Elm. I agree. It's like, okay, I killed you, but guess what? Your body's gonna survive for another you know, fifteen you know for another four and a half minutes, so I still get to carve you up any way I want. Which again God. horrifying concept and Jackie Earl Haley just his delivery of that line is phenomenal and just that whole sequence i really enjoyed not all the sequences from the remake i enjoyed but the one in the prison with that poor kid stumbling into the boiler room and the one in the uh, convenience store when nancy begins having involuntary sleep seizures basically yeah i i kind of like that one too but but overall though the the whole movie what i have to think is this by all rights should be jackie earl haley cementing himself as the next great horror act. Because I remember really thinking when I heard that he was cast, uh, this was not that long after Watchmen had come out. It's a very no, mixed that, review. Well, that, his performance as Rorschach is kind of what cemented him in getting the role. That oh, he played a... Fucking I movie. believe he had played a uh, similarly creepy character before. Now I'm going to have to look up the movie, so continue with your point. Well, yeah, I, I believe he had played, um, I think, a pederast or something like that. Yeah, the movie uh, Little Children, I believe, is the title. I, I think so, something like that. But anyway, um, no, Watchmen came out, and it came out to very mixed reviews. A lot of people liked it, but the real hardcore comic scholars really seem to hate it. I I mean, they loathed it passionately. I seem to remember that even Alan Moore once more said, God, I never want another one of my graphic novels to ever be turned into a movie again. Um, Well, to be fair to Mr. Moore's sensibilities, he said that after V for Vendetta, which is one of my all-time favorite adaptations. Well, before that, I seem to recall, I believe he said it about The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Everybody said that about the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, though it had a lot more to do with the director than anyone else. In- uh, but really, in, in terms of in terms of that movie, though, yeah, Jackie Earl Haley bringing Rorschach to life as just this endlessly violent, endlessly remorseless, raging, sadistic character. Just this force of nature, the delivery of the lines, when I really thought about it, when I really thought of the way he delivered delivered every line of Moore's dialogue, I thought, yes, yes, this is definitely somebody who could, have, who could pick up where Robert England left off. When I saw the initial photos, I thought, okay, 
this is looking promising. I was iffy about this before, but I'm starting to have some faith. Then I saw the trailer. Then I saw the trailer in which, as Freddy Krueger, as a still-living, still-breathing human being, is being chased into a warehouse by a mob of angry parents, he pants-pissingly moaned, I didn't do anything! And I just went, no, 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 no. You tell me, tell me, new line architects of the house that Freddie built, that you are not going to take the bastard son of a thousand maniacs and try to turn him into a wrongly accused, sympathetic character. Please tell me that's not where you're going. And lo and behold, in one of the great piss-me-off, table-flipping, your mother will see what I do for you moments, they actually bait-and-switched it. They actually made it look like that was where they were going, like he was wrongly accused. Robert, Robert, fuck talk. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. If you desire to speak to the host, please press 1 at any time, and the host will be notified that there is a caller in queue. Otherwise, please hold and you will be able to listen to the show. You are now in the Thank you for using Blog Talk Radio. Goodbye. Hey, Sean. Okay. You there? Yeah, Blog Talk again. Nope. Okay. <laughs> Joking aside, now I'm starting to get fucking angry. Uh, yeah. Um, like I said, the next one of these, we're going to try a different format and see how that, wor- see how that works because this is okay, getting you know more than it's had. I'm, uh, I, I'm really tempted. I, I have some audio editing software. I'm really tempted to actually just clip off this part, find out, what the customer ser- what the client service address is for Blog Talk, and actually send this whole rant directly to them. We do this for fun. Go for it. We do this. We do this for free. We're not doing this for profit. It's not like this is a livelihood to us. However, this is something into which we still sink a lot of effort. We still come into these shows wanting to provide the most entertaining commentary that we possibly can. We want to entertain. We want to inform. If I could. Just- I know where you're going with this. As a brief side note, uh, this show, as well as all the others on the Radlich and Broadcasting Network, is whether it's uploaded after the fact or done live uh, through this account, Mark Radlich, our gracious host of this account, does in fact pay the people at Blog Talk for services run. Yeah, and the fact is, even though it might seem kind of low stakes because this is just a hobby to us, we still want to deliver the best show that we can, and it's fucking impossible when I'm right in the middle of trying to make a point that I've actually researched, and I all of a sudden realize when I get to the end of it and I'm and there's dead silence that I can't tell how long I've been fucking talking to myself. I'm with you there, because, you know, because again, I don't know who gets cut off, if it's both of us or just one of us, or if... The entire broadcast goes to elevator music. So I, as Blog Talk has whatever technical issues it has, I'm assuming some poor technician just can't quite figure out how to properly layer his torrent so that it doesn't lag the entire server. Yeah. So, you know what? Blog Talk, since I am going to send this to you, fuck each and every single last one of you with a spiked stick. This is why we're going to be going very soon to a combination 
of Google Hangouts, and eventually over to, well, now not YouTube anymore because copyright issues, but why we're going to be going over to Springboard. And please believe, I'm no big fan of Springboard necessarily. Their platform has terrible lag issues, but quite frankly, it's fucking better than this. It, it, you know, it's a good thing I made this a 90-minute show instead of an hour show, otherwise half of it would have been dead silent. I... Okay, well, rants aside, let's... I'll kind of pick up where I was, and if you were, and if you want to just finish making your point, by all means, go ahead. Um, I was moving on from uh, Jack. Okay, I know where I heard you cut off, more or less, and that was talking about Jack Earl Haley, supposed to be cementing himself as the next as a great horror actor coming off of Watch and oh coming my into. God. I was going on for ages after that. So Fuck do you, you. want to? <laughs> all right, all okay. right, all right. I'm just going to so let just, it. I'm just go gonna for let it. Eat here. Okay, for God's sake, everybody, yes, download it and listen to the overrun. Oh, we still got nine, We still got 30 minutes left, so we're okay. Yeah, we got 30 minutes left for blog talk radio to torture me and make me wonder when I'm going to get cut off. Anyway, yes, by all right, totally should have been what cemented Jackie Earl Haley as one of the next great horror stars. Because after, after his turn in Watchmen, he brought so much viciousness, so much unrepentant bloodlust to the character of Rorschach, brought so much of Alan Moore's outstanding writing to life. But yeah, when they said he was going to be cast as Freddy Krueger, you know what, I've been skeptical about the news that was being remade. After hearing that, I was down. I was totally ready for that. When I saw the dailies of the new makeup and the sweater and the fedora and the glove, Okay, even better. Absolutely. They're getting the look right. They're really giving this a very dark menace that it deserves. So, a head-on point. So there, Robert? Yep, I'm here. Okay. Then came the trailer. Then came the moment in the trailer when a still-human Freddy Krueger is running, looking like he's presumably leaving a leaking yellow trail behind him for the angry parents to follow, runs into a warehouse, and right before he gets good and molotov he moans, I didn't do anything. Then I was just left going, no, 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 no. Tell me, tell me you're not taking the bastard son of a thousand maniac and trying to turn him in to a wrongly accused sympathetic character. Please. Let me say this. That I, I see where you're coming from. I still, maybe a bit naively, had some hope because if they're because they were showing, you know, the ex- vigilante justice murder of Freddy Krueger. And to me it made perfect sense that a character like Freddy Krueger would be running for his life going, No, I didn't do it. That makes perfect sense. I, I became more frustrated with it when they as far as the execution went within the movie itself, because Oh, yeah. And yeah. This is one that I go back and forth on because for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, starting the third act, give or take, uh, the final two remaining kids, uh, one is Rooney Mara, I forget the actor for the other one, you have a boy and a girl who are left trying desperately to survive, and they confront their parents over what actually happened to Fred Krueger, and they said, you know, he was, we had every reason to believe he was a child molester, and he was 
molesting and hurting you kids, but we couldn't prove it, and we didn't want to go through all the effort of a trial and making you guys rehash it, so we all got together, chased him into a warehouse, and burned him alive. At which point, the kid is... I do need, you know, I'm going to look up the guy's the kid's name because he's one, he was actually one of the few somewhat bright points in that uh, due to do uh, Kyle Gallner who played uh, the character is Quentin he actually managed to make his character a tad sympathetic yeah he did whereas whereas Rooney Mara was just kind of there to be a blank face waste of space but I, at which point at which point he I, says I sorry what was that I was just saying I I I really never seen the big deal about. Rooney Mara, if we're being completely honest here. Yeah, me neither. But uh, to get on to the story, they they then begin questioning, well, if you couldn't prove it, maybe he didn't do it, and now he's getting back at you because you wrongfully murdered him. At which point I kind of, in the theater, put my head in my hand and said, why, oh, why would you bother with this line of story? And I'll, I'll tell you why. Because when they go back to his house and do find proof that, hey, guess what? He really was molesting the children. It just makes the whole thing a pointless exercise in swerve. Oh, yeah. And then here's, here's kind of what annoyed me a little more about it. Because after I thought about it, I got back a couple of days later. I was, you know, it was still kind of kicking around in my head. I thought, you know, it actually kind of makes sense for these Two poor teenagers who desperately want to believe, no, we weren't touched as little children by this creepy old, by a pedophile. So it would make sense for them to kind of desperately not believe it. Which, and the problem there becomes, you're only getting the perspective of those two, so what the entire perspective of the audience, instead of you know, dislike for Freddy Krueger and this horrible thing that he did, becomes, well, maybe he didn't do it, which is what their thought is. And to me, that flaw falls more in the writing and direction, where... Whereas you should have presented that point of view as them really, really, really not wanting to have that psychological baggage instead of presenting a legitimate line of, well, maybe he didn't actually. Just, and, and there it is. It's the simple fact that all of this could have been so good. You had the right actor, but you wasted him on a horrible, horrible script. Yeah, I... Apparently during our downtime, and if I was recorded saying this, that it'll be a repeat for everyone listening at home, I enjoyed a lot of that movie up until the end, kind of the same way I enjoyed a lot of Saw 3 up until the end. It seemed like with Saw 3, and I've mentioned this before and probably will again, that within the third movie in the Saw franchise, everything was going along pretty good, and then whoever was writing it looked at their script and, and realized, oh, crap, we're in the last 15 minutes and there's not enough gore. So let's cram as much as we possibly can in. And with the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, we get to the, you get to the final confrontation, the two kids and Freddy, and it seemed like whoever was writing it went, oh, wait, it's Freddy. We need jokes. Even though it is completely not in sync with the tone that Jackie Earl Haley and the rest of the movie had been trying to establish for the character. But, hey, it's Freddy. We need Joe. Yeah, so that, that's amazing. So your movie is pretty well out of touch with the rest of the Nightmare on Elm Street universe, the rest of kind of what's expected, and yet even that was out of tone with your already out-of-touch movie. Yeah, it's, again, there are good, I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm just, completely bagging on the whole thing because there are things about the remake that I personally enjoy. It's just unfortunate that there's so much not and oh, is kind yeah. of is kind of what my last word as far as that. Was. Yeah. Are you there, Sean? Yeah, just such a okay. damn man. I, I don't know. I mean, 
Robert, you tell me, is there a sequel from the original line that's actually worse? Uh, I don't care. There are some serious issues with uh, Dream Master. If you've never, if you haven't seen it in a while, rewatching it, it's kind of jokey. Uh, Dream Child, same kind of thing. And I haven't seen the Final Nightmare in way too long to comment on its overall quality. Oh God, Final Nightmare, Final Nightmare, Final Nightmare, Final Nightmare. Okay. At- but before we, as I was kind of rambling, and what I assume was cut off of audio from our second little ex- adventure with Blog Talk's technical deficiency, I, I was about to segue into, again, talking about the original and just all, as far as the original goes, um, it, it's been mentioned here, but Freddy Krueger was killed by being burned alive. Consequently, his the, the vision, the persona that he perfl- that he projects in the dream world and the real world, whenever he is pulled into it, is that of a horribly, horribly scarred individual. And it's I mean, there's a lot of very good makeup work, depending on the movie, that has gone into Freddy Krueger. But when I don't know the entire story behind the casting of Robert England. And since you're, you've got your, you've got the big making of documentary for the first one. I assume you probably know more about that one than I do at this point. I don't know what inspired Wes Craven to go with him, but you could not have found a better actor for that role at that time because he's a. We we talked about this before when we talked about Universal Monsters and on other podcasts. But there was a guy in Robert England who is able to take the makeup this. Heavy, late, I don't know the whole process, but there's a lot of it, and he's able to still emote effectively, show a range of emotion, evoke a different sense, get a different reaction based on what he wants you to react to, despite all of, all of the makeup that's on him, that a lot of lesser actors would be seriously hampered by, perhaps critically. Um, what I seem to remember from what I know of the, uh, of the, of the story of the audition process, well, a big thing was that when Robert came in, they were kind of already a fan of him because he was on the original miniseries V, and they really liked his work from that. And then when he came in to audition for Freddy Krueger, apparently in his car um, there had been some... Uh, some cigarette butts or something in the ashtray, and he had taken some of the ash and kind of shattered it kind of under his eyes to kind of give him a look of having some very dark bags. And apparently that was a big part of what uh, of what really sold West on it on on his on his acting ability. And to his credit, I mean, hey, it it, it works. It it really really works. So. So yeah, I, I was just getting ready to heap praise on Robert England as Freddy because even with the horrible dialogue that he is given in later movies, and some of it is really, really bad, he still somehow, at least whenever I see him playing Freddy, whenever Freddy's on screen, I am never taken out of the fact that, yes, this is Freddy. Maybe he's in a bad movie, maybe he has bad dialogue, but he never, as a huge credit to Robert England as an actor, he never lets that take away from the character and his portrayal. Maybe the overall movie suffers greatly at, at times, but he never takes a shortcut or never just shows up for a paycheck as far as being Freddy. No, he always gives it his all. And and sometimes an actor can save. Um, I yeah. mean, they, they, they really can, just with giving just that kind of honest-to-God effort where maybe they know it's bad, but they just realize maybe... A, I'm going to have fun, and B, I'm going to see if maybe I can't pull something good out of it. And 
in horror, you really particularly have to do that. You really do have to give the monster some kind of personality for it to be memorable. Um, even in e- even in the Saw movies, as you mentioned, obviously as they go along, they do diminish greatly in quality. However, give Tobin Bell credit. Tobin really brings it and really gets into playing Jigsaw each and every single time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There are later entries in that series. He is the only reason to watch the movie, is to watch Tobin Bella's Jigsaw. Yeah, I mean, you know, horror actors, it's a shame that some of them aren't given more credit than they really deserve because they really do have to reach to get somebody into a character the way Robert England gets people into Freddy Krueger. I'll even go you a step further. Uh, take a look at the way people view the actors who have played Jason and the way they actually, they, they will actually really pick apart the way some people play what is a mute character that's behind a hockey mask. Because whoever plays Jason has to get across a lot through body length. Through, For my uh, money, the two best... Uh, the two best people to play Jason were, of course, Kane Hodder, and I think uh, Derek Mears was the one who did him in the remake. And for as much wrong as there is with the least Jason was not, at least the character of Jason had sufficient menace. Yes, there were some yeah. really stupid parts, but... Yeah, however, the problem was uh, Jason was an Olympic-class archer who also moved like an NFL linebacker. And he could... He must have been part mole because he dug all those wonderful tunnels. Oh, yeah, yeah, he was also quite the civil engineer, too. And then... I almost want to make a red wall joke there, but I don't think anyone would get it. Um, I mean, uh, I, for those of you who don't know, brief aside, one of my all-time favorite book series, uh, they're called the Red Wall Books. They're written kind of for teenagers, um, you know, early teens, kind of older children, and I just enjoy them to death. And one of the defining characteristics of that whole series is that the author gave each they're all about anthropomorphic animals. He gave each species their own very distinct dialect, and moles have a very heavy, uh, very peculiar way of speech. And now, for, and courtesy of that movie, whenever I see Jason, I expect him to speak in Molson, and it just <laughs> kind of kills some of the menace. So for anyone out there who gets that reference. Uh, it's, but, but yeah, and I can go along the lines with a lot of others. We talk about Doug Bradley all the time. We're, we're both big, big Doug Bradley. Yeah. Um, look at how much he's got to, he's got to do to really bring that character to life. Uh, look at uh, Warwick Davis. In the, re- in the Leprechaun movies. Okay, obviously, now we're getting into a territory where we're talking about a character who's not really very scary. But damn it, he makes it fun because the little guy hams it up so much. Yeah, he he does, just, uh, well, I almost wish... Um, kind of an odd story... Uh, not odd, but it's kind of a roundabout story. Um, my stepmother used to work at a hotel uh, she, here in Salt Lake City, and she met a lot of famous people, and she... Had met Warwick. She actually has met Warwick Davis more than once, and I just—I almost wish. I really kind of wish I'd had the chance to you know, even just meet him because, like you said, when he's in those Leprechaun movies, it's, you can just tell he's having so much fun. Even though a lot of it is, even though it gets kind of stupid in places, there's just there's something awesome about watching an actor have fun in a role, and that alone is worth watching certain movies. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if, if they're not having fun. I'm not. Speaking of Rooney I mean, Mara. <laughs> well, uh, well, hell, you want proof of that? Go watch Blade. <laughs> or don't. But. Yeah, yeah uh, well, uh, correction. If you want either A, if you want to see a demonstration of what I'm talking about, 
Or B, you have a deep-seated self-hatred, go watch Blade Trinity. But, assuming the former, unlikely as it is, uh, the fact is, Wesley Snipes, historically and famously, fucking hated Blade Trinity. He hated acting in it, he hated the concept of it, he hated the director, I'm sure he probably hated craft service. Just everybody... Um, and in fact, they had to kind of edit around it because so many times he was holding up production, refusing to do lines, refusing to do scenes, spending a lot of time in the trailer just getting high. And, yeah, yeah. And, and it shows through. In, in the first movie, he manages to bring a little bit of personality. And you can tell that he's really happy. He's really having some fun playing Blade, even for having to be such uh, a serious all the time guy. Um,. Trinity? I'd say in, in a lot of ways the same way in the second one, uh, Blade Two as well, because a lot more of that is tends towards the over the top elements. And the second Blade is one where I look at that and I think, you know, I think pretty much everybody in that movie had a good time. Oh yeah, yeah. Blade Blade Two is a really underrated. I I, I really think it is. I, I would dare to say that it's under. Uh, it's not as good as the first one. Then again, I don't think anything they came up with was going to be. Because, let's face it, Blade is a fucking awesome. Because, well, also, I mean, hell, there's another guy who was having a lot of fun with that. Steven Dorff. Steven Dorff and Donald Logue just chewing scenery as the villains and just having having an absolute ball doing it. Counts for a lot. That kind of effort counts for a very great... And, yeah, to kind of bring that back to Freddy... Watching Robert England act as him in some of those movies is, and that's not. This isn't to say it's a negative or that the uh, the rest of the movie is not good, but it is absolutely the high point of a bunch of those movies. Watching him clearly just have fun, getting to be that kind of malicious and evil. I mean, even in you yeah. know like three and four, when it becomes kind of lighthearted in a way, there's still you can just still see that he's enjoying what he's doing, and it just it translates so much to everything else within the film. Now. May I bring this around to my second favorite Nightmare on Elm Street movie? Oh, by all means, we have we absolutely have to get back to uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which is a slightly which is in and of itself so, an, kind of an oddity within the series. But if you ever want to have fun with comparing Robert England, he did. I'm going to check the chronology fast. Yeah, Freddy's Dead: The Final Nightmare came out prior to Wes Craven's New Nightmare. If you ever want to see the range that that Robert England is capable of. Compare the final nightmare to new nightmare, and I'll let you go from My God, this movie. So, yeah, by this point, uh, just to kind, of, to kind of bring things up to speed, by now, Wes Craven wrote, directed the first movie. It was entirely his baby. It was his brainchild. He nurtured it, and he watched it grow up into a fine young murderer. Had nothing to do with the second. Wrote a script that he intended to close out the franchise for the third one, that was, you know, by committee, rewritten by several people, including Frank Darabont, and the result was one of the better sequels in the entire franchise. He had nothing to do with anything from Nightmare 4 up through Freddy's Death, the final nightmare. He fucking cracked wise about it in Scream. Even, even you know, having the line for Drew Bear, although actually, you know, um, uh, yeah, technically it's Kevin Williamson's line, but I refuse to believe Wes probably didn't look at this and smile. Um, uh, 
in which uh, Drew Barrymore says... Did you say all of them except the first one suck while talking on the phone with Ghostface? First one was scary. The sequels all sucked. Um, But then Wes comes up with this idea and decides that he is going to go meta with New Knight and craft this story in which I really don't want to spoil very much of it because I really want... I really want you all to go and watch this movie because it is that good, in which the cast of the original Nightmare on Elm Street, really nobody from the sequels, just the ones from the original, are being haunted by something that is very, let's just say, very familiar. And it's the whole thing is led by Heather Langenkamp playing herself, not playing Nancy, playing herself and herself and her family being stalked by Freddie. And it's brought along to this tremendous, tremendous confrontational resolution. Throughout the movie, you don't see Freddie himself. You really don't. Not very much at all, as opposed to the other movies where he's there the entire time, where he's a very invisible presence. We're still going, right, Robert? Yep. Okay, good. Um, And then... Finally, finally get to the moment where Freddy is able to come through and really able to finally get to her. And there is this moment where you finally see Robert as Freddy um, with blue moonlight cast on his face in shadow, full close-up on him. And he just sneers and it's me. Obviously not in that voice, but in the just... The nastiest just makes you defecate yourself growl that you could possibly imagine, as only Robert can deliver it. I swear to you, this movie is the most terrifying Freddy Krueger has ever been. The most scary, the most ugly, the most menacing, arguably the most violent. It is just absolutely perfect for what is a pretty daring concept that would really have the potential in anybody else's hands to get silly and ridiculous and really it wouldn't have the kind of the kind of tight storytelling and mythology and kind of rules that Wes gives it. Even even appearing himself in really a pretty damn good can and I like to say this is like the moment when Wes finally threw down the gloves and said let me show you fuckers how it's done, okay? You've taken my brainchild. You've had your fun with it. You've made the shadow of what I ever meant it. Now, let me show you why I'm the best at what I... And damn it, does... Uh, he even finds a way to take Nico Hughes, one of the all-time, probably top four or five most irritating child actors there's ever been, and even manages to make him kind of creepy. You dragged a good performance kicking and screaming out of Miko Hughes. God damn it, how do you not get an honorary Oscar for that? And to kind of go to your point about Wes kind of throwing down the gauntlet and saying, no, I'm going to do it right, there was not another movie featuring Freddy Krueger following New Nightmare, which was released in 1994, for another nine years. And even then... He came out for Freddy vs. Jason, which was released in 2003, and Freddy vs. Jason is kind of its own animal, as opposed to a lot of, even within each franchise's mythology, if you get into the Friday the 13th or the Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy vs. Jason is just kind of its own animal, and you don't really get another, 
So Freddy was there for that, but even after that, it was another seven years before the uh, remake in 2010. And in a lot of ways, we all kind of, you know, we talked at length about that one. But yeah, what Wes Craven was able to do with New Nightmare put such an effective stamp on the character of Freddy Krueger that we only got him back in, again, 03 for the super fight with Jason Voorhees. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know, I guess there might be some people that are still holding out hope that we might one day get... Freddy versus Jason versus Ash. Hey, Bruce Campbell on screen is nothing but money. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Even when, even in some of the movies when Bruce is clearly just there, just picking up a paycheck. Um, hey, I maintain him being the Mater D was hands down the best part of Spider-Man 3. Absolutely. Oh, oh definitely, definitely. Yeah, he, he even managed to have some fun with that. Um, Freddy versus Jason versus Ash. I really think that with the right script, that could be brought to life and be really, really fun. It could be. It's it's a shame we'll never see it realistically, but I well, believe there's a graphic the, novel out there that if you haven't read, please pick up because it's just all kinds of fun. Yeah, if you're if you're not going to read it, um, go over to that guy with the glasses, uh, Linkara, in his second year doing Long Box of the Damned. Um, I think it was this year, but this year or last year. He, he has a thing he's done on a top of the fourth wall, his, uh, his comic review show, where he's taken, for 31 days, he's done 31 short, about five-minute reviews of different horror comics. And I think this year was when he did Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash. So go and give that a look, because for the most part, he's not making fun of them for being bad, a lot of them, he's pointing them out as being actually very good. So give it a shot, because Robert nailed it. It really is excellent. It really does bring the best out of each of the franchises. I just think that between the fact that Friday the 13th and Nightmare are pretty much dead in the water, and actually even the plans for the Evil Dead franchise are now kind of in jeopardy, uh, yeah, that's not going anywhere. And if it does, we're not getting Robert Englund as Freddy. That's a foregone. Yeah, and it, it's kind of sad because, again, if I, much as I enjoyed what Jackie Earl Haley did with Freddy, if they were going to do Freddy, Jason, and Ash, you'd have to have Robert Englund as Freddy for that one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, yeah, that that's kind of going to... On the note that we would all like to see Freddy versus Jason versus Ash, because we all love Bruce Campbell here, that's going to wrap up our discussion of Freddy Krueger tonight. Again, yeah, I, I mentioned at the top probably one of the biggest icons to ever come out of the entire decade of the 80s, and I, I will stand by that. And, I mean, not the only one, to be sure, but what, hands down, I think, one of the biggest. And the fact that he could still be going strong all these years later is just kind of a testament to that. So, uh, Sean, any final thoughts on Freddy, and then let's get into your... Oh, not really any final thoughts, except for the fact that... At this point, I think that if a script isn't going to be written by Wes Craven or somebody similarly reputable, I would really just assume never see the franchise touched again. I'm just perfectly, perfectly fine having Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, Wes Craven's new Nightmare to fall back on. I'm totally good with that. In the meantime, uh, as far as pluggery goes, next week... Be sure to tune in at the same time you tuned in tonight to Unfortunately Blog Talk Radio at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Mountain Time because Long Road to Ruin is going to be back. And with it, the Mandated Reporter, Mark Rodelich, is going to be back from his month-long time off. 
and we are going to be taking a little break from movies we despise. Talk about, Robert, I'll say it before you do, arguably the greatest three movies ever put to the toys. Three movies wherein you are not going to hear probably either of us have a single negative thing to say about any of them, but a lot to say about their impact on Pixar, on Disney, and why it's it's such an enduring franchise. In the meantime, uh, this Sunday, be sure to, well, late Sunday night, early Monday morning, whichever, be sure to bop on over to the 411mania.com music zone for my album-by-album album artist retrospective column, Give Life Back to Music. We are coming into the third album of my look at Johnny Cash's recordings with Rick Rubin for American Recordings. Um, it, it's going to be another one in which, again, I'm not going to have a bad thing to say about this, but a lot of personal things to say about it. And in the meantime, be sure to follow us on, well, not follow us, but uh, like us over on Facebook. We always enjoy conversation. We always enjoy more listeners. We always love feedback. So if you've got a franchise you'd love to see, You'd love to hear us cover. If you've got uh, love, hate, or respectful disagreement for something we've covered, by all means, let us know. We are happy to communicate with just we only have one rule. Don't be a dick. It's a good rule. It's like my it's like my universal rule of don't do anything stupid. It's, it's a good it's rule. So much so much else falls under that umbrella. You can just say it and cover so much. Yeah. It's just that for some reason it also seems to be a rule that most people hate to follow the way the state of Florida hates Dayton. <laughs> uh, yeah, really? You people dressed up as Trayvon and George Zimmerman for Halloween? Seriously? You did that? You went there? Oh, man. Go ahead. Make an argument for not cutting you loose from the contiguous United States and floating you toward Florida. Toward Cuba. You want to know the best part about Florida? We could probably like measure out a line of demarcation from where we could cut them off and be better off without. I think we would need to somehow find a way to relocate the Radlich clan to somewhere else in the United States. But hey, I, don't know, I, I now have the vision in my head: an old Looney Tunes cartoon of featuring Bugs Bunny. The whole premise being he saw a wanted poster. You know, posters for various animals being caught and how much they're worth, and rabbits aren't worth anything because they're not dangerous. He immediately takes deep offense to them. And one of the <laughs> things that he does to convince people that rabbits are actually worth money to be caught is he takes a handsaw and cuts the state of Florida free from the U.S. So, Bugs Bunny, wherever you are, I say get to it. When will we listen to Bugs? Oh, he does a lot of <laughs> amusingly horrible things in that particular short. From Donnie Darko right. Nobody ever listens to the fucking rabbit. Yeah, don't quote that movie at me. I don't care much for it, and I get a lot of crap because of it. <laughs> it's flawed, but I enjoy it. You know, I'm going to do a cheap plug here to anyone listening. If you enjoy Donnie Darko, I found a better version, I think. If you don't mind watching British cinema, so you have to listen with the accent. But there's a movie, I believe it streams on Netflix, called Heart, that I found to be in a similar style, but done much better in every possible way, I think. So if you have some time to kill, look it up, That and feel free to hurl profanity at me later if you disagree with me, but that's one that I very much enjoy and has kind of the same spirit attached to it. Give that a try. And getting into my own personal plugs, uh, 
Every Friday, Locked in the Guillotine goes live in the MMA zone of 411mania.com. This week, up right now, actually, is my look back at Tito Ortiz's neck injury and the fallout. And today, one of my favorite moments was telling you live on Long Road to Ruin that Tito Ortiz broke his neck and was out of that event and they couldn't... And the pay-per-view had been canceled. Because the next best thing to that was actually reading Eddie Alvarez's reaction, pretty much saying, fucking told you. <laughs> uh, poor Eddie Alvarez. He's going to get killed by Michael Chandler. Uh, which, which is too bad, because I think he's on the verge of becoming the, the most fun, bitter troll of Bellator. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the Bellator event, Bellator 106, uh, 411 Mania in the MMA Zone will have live coverage. I don't know if Jeff Harris is providing live coverage. He will be live at the event. So if you're one of the other five people in the audience and you happen to see him, say hi. Say hi and then walk the other direction. That's unnecessary. Um, next week, uh, Wednesday, I believe, UFC Fight for the Troops 3, headlined by Tim Kennedy and Rafael Natal. I will be providing live coverage for that one. And Iron Sheik, if you're out there, please show up, walk off Ayala Natal to the ring. That's all I'm asking. And then have some, then have a confrontation with Tim Kennedy. That's all I want. That's all I want. Come on, you can still humble the man. I have faith in you. Uh, as always, you can catch me on the 411 Ground and Pound radio show every Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, I'm either, depending on the day, I'm either hosting or just a contributor, depending on whether Mark Radlich is available for hosting duties or not. We have a good time. Pat Mullen usually stops by. Jeff Harris is there. We talk all things MMA. Um, Next week on Everyone Loves a Bad Guy, at the request of Mr. Rowdlich, on on whom (laughs) it warns that works every now and then, I have to make a concession to him. Next week, assuming he's available, if not, I will change plans. I'll call an audible. But if he's available next week, right here, same time, same channel, Mark Radlich and I will be talking about Darth Vader. No, there will be no mention of Hayden Christensen or Mannequin Skywalker. This is about Darth Vader. So if you're a fan, tune in for that. Much fun should be had. We'll poke fun at George Lucas. We'll praise the physical and voice acting. All around good times because Vader's one of those that you have to get out there. He's just that iconic. And, Sean, I would like to thank you for joining me the last several weeks for Horror Month. It's been a pleasure to have you on. I hope to have you back at some point in the future, assuming you're willing. You know what we uh, we need the we need to get the practice rounds in when we can because of course obviously you're going to be once more co-hosting Long Road to Ruin with me for a pretty good stretch while Mark is going to be taking another sabbatical. Sorry. Yeah, it'll be a couple of months. That should fall in li- on the plus side. That I believe that will fall kind of in line with uh, reviewing the e- original Evil Dead trilogy, courtesy of a lost bet from Mr. Radlich. I believe lost- that's going. His, I believe that's going to be his uh, Bon Voyage show. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's, a, that's actually not a bad series, because even though it's horror and Mark's not a big horror fan, there's not a lot of the grossness that would normally put one off of horror as far as, especially when you get into two and three. So, uh, and, and, hope, well, and, and the really sad part is, is we talked before about the great idea they have for where they want to go with it. From what I'm hearing, that may be out the window. Um, because it's my sleep way too long and wake up in the in the post-apocalyptic future. Well, no, I mean the idea for this was the idea that the Evil Dead remake slash reimagining whatever you want to call it that came out recently was the start of an of a parallel but alternate timeline, and that what was going to happen from here 
was Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell were going to get to work on Army of Dark. Betty Alvarez and his writers were going to get, work, get to work on Evil Dead. And then finally, there was going to be a movie that was going to close out the entire franchise by bringing the two timelines together. Unfortunately, word has come out within the last week that apparently Teddy Alvarez and the lead writer have exited the project and they're no longer going to be doing Evil Dead. So I hope that still goes forward because that was truly an awesome idea. An awesome idea, and I actually enjoyed the... I just refer to it as the new Evil Dead to avoid however they choose to retcon and title it. It's, it's the new one, so... It, 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 yeah, it, it gets you past the minutia. Yeah, I enjoyed I enjoyed that a great deal, but my as has been discussed, I'm a bit of a gore hound, uh, probably, at least an eighth. So I enjoyed that, and hopefully I'll, I'll see if Mark will let me guest spot on that one, since it'll be kind of his farewell. And I love that particular franchise to death. But on that note, with a mild look to the future, uh, for Sean Comer, I am the bad guy, Robert Winfrey, and I thank you all for joining us. We will see you next week. So say goodnight to the bad guys.